Good morning. Would you join me in Acts chapter 2? How many of you in this room speak more than one language? A few. You know, most of us don't realize it, but if we're Christians, we speak two languages. We speak English and we speak Christianese. Christianese sounds a lot like English, but it's filled with words that are only in the Christian vocabulary. Words that an unchurched person would never understand. If you listen in on the Christian conversation, sometimes you'll hear terms like pre-trib, rapture, sacrament, I'm an evangelical, I'm going to give my testimony, he's backsliding, We often use phrases that I don't think we even want anybody to interpret. So let me interpret a few of them for you. When somebody says, I didn't feel led to go, that means I slept in. Somebody says, you just seem to be laid on my heart. That means your mom called me and told me to talk to you. Somebody says, you know, I really need to exercise my gift. That means I don't have a clue what I'm talking about. And even the words that are used in Scripture, common words in Scripture, are sometimes translated in such a way that they have no meaning in our culture. Words like baptize. Baptize is a very simple word that means to dunk. Words like deacon, which is a very simple word in the first century language that meant to serve. Have you ever tried to use baptize and deacon in your everyday life? Almost ran out of gas and barely made it to the deacon station. I was up in St. Louis the other day at that uh, donut place, the one that has the really good coffee. Baptizing donuts. Walked in, nobody waited on me. Finally I said, Can a guy get some deacon around here? I was at the basketball game the other night. Saw a guy do a 360 tomahawk slam baptize. Christianese is confusing. And then then to make it more complicated, we add words like pulpit you. 
Doesn't sound like something you want to sit on, does it? Hymnal, baptismal, layman, the elements. I grew up with sword drills, Bible reference. It's confusing. Church is one of those words that is used often in the Bible and doesn't translate into our culture. So unfortunately, a lot of people misunderstand what church means. What do you think of when I say the word church? Most people think of a building. In fact, if you look it up in Webster's Dictionary, the primary definition is a building for public worship. We use it that way. We say, I went up to the church and nobody was there. Go three miles down the road and turn left at the church. We use it of a building. We use it of an event. We say, I was late for church. Quiet, we're having church. And though we use it in those ways, I hope that you understand that that is not the real meaning of the word. You see, in New Testament times, they didn't create words when they talked about things. They didn't create religious words. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he didn't make up a word. He used a very common word. The word is ekklesia. Ek means out. Kleo means to call. So the church is a called out group. That's what it means. In fact, in Acts chapter 19, in verse 32, a riotous mob in the city of Ephesus is called a church because the the word simply meant a group of people. And so when you see the word church or hear the word church, you can substitute it with the word group. Now, obviously, Jesus, when he talks about his church, gave special significance to that term because this is the unique called-out group to Jesus Christ. But God's church is not made up of wood and blocks and plaster. It is composed of people. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you do not simply attend church. You are the church. Remember the little saying, here's the church, here's the steeple? There's another Christianese term, steeple. I I did some research. Where did steeple come from? It seemed that that way back when, when people didn't have watches, they didn't know what time it was. They just kind of looked at the sun. So the churches all put uh, bell towers up. And they would sound the bells to let people know it was time to come to church. When everybody got watches and they didn't need it anymore, they kind of made it into a point and called it a steeple and still put it on churches or church buildings. So here's the church, here's the steeple, open the doors, here's all the people. That's not biblically correct. What you should say is, and it doesn't rhyme, here's the building, here's the pointy tower, open the doors, And here's the church. 
The church is the people. Now this word ecclesia, this word group in the Bible is used two different ways referring to the church. It's used of the universal church, which is composed of all believers from this first day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 up until the day when Jesus returns. Jesus is talking, or the Bible is talking about the the universal church in Acts 20.28 when it talks about the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. It is made up of all believers all over the world. Some have already died that make up the church, the universal church. This is a group that doesn't gather physically, can't gather physically, and will not gather physically until we all gather in the presence of the Lord one day. That's the universal church. And yet the Bible says we are one because it says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. The universal church, and then there's the local church. The Bible talks about the church of the Thessalonians, the church at Ephesus, the church in Philadelphia. In fact, in Romans chapter 16, verse 5, Paul sends greetings to Priscilla and Aquila, and he says, and the church that is in your house. So there's this universal church, and then there is the local church. And throughout Scripture, the church is depicted in a variety of ways. We're referred to as the flock of God. We're referred to as the household of God, the temple of God, the bride of Christ. But the most common way that the church is depicted is as the body of Christ. God's primary way of reaching this lost and broken world is always through incarnation. Jesus Christ became a man and dwelt among us. He is the expression of God to man. And the interesting thing is that when Jesus went back to heaven, God didn't stop working through incarnation. Because Jesus' life was manifest, first of all, physically through his body, but today, how is his life manifested? It's manifested corporately through his body, which is the church. In fact, it's interesting, if you look back at Acts chapter 1 and verse 1, Luke is writing this, and he's the one who wrote Luke's gospel, and he describes his gospel this way. He says, The first account, my gospel, was of all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up. The gospel is about what Jesus began to do and teach. The book of Acts is about what Jesus continued to do and teach. Jesus is in heaven. How does he continue that? In his body, the church. You say, well, how do I see the body of Christ? Do I have to go around to every church all over the world and kind of get an idea and kind of put together a jigsaw puzzle of what the body of Christ looks like? Well, that would be fascinating to do. But the reality is that when you look at the local church, you should see the depiction of the body of Christ. Because everything that is true of the universal called-out body is true of the local called-out body. In 1 Corinthians chapter 
12 and verse 27, writing to the church at Corinth, Paul says, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And he could say the same thing to us this morning. You are the body of Christ. And what Jesus did in body one, he wants to do in body two. In body one, he was a world changer and a hell crasher. By his death, burial, and resurrection, he ripped the gates off of death and hell. In fact, writing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul spends an entire chapter on the resurrection. And at the end of that chapter, he actually mocks death by saying, Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? That's equivalent to saying, Na-na-na-na-boo-boo. And we as a church, body too, are called to be world changers and hell crashers. Because Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And as we said last week, the gates are not offensive weapons. It's not that hell is coming after us, though there's some truth to that. The reality is we are going against hell and its gates cannot keep us out. And we are plucking people as the Bible says, out of the fire. You say, well, how can we be world changers and hell crashers? I started reading a book just recently. I I would highly recommend it. It's called Radical by a guy named David Platt, who is a megachurch preacher, so he can speak with some understanding and authority. And in his book, he says that as successful people who have achieved the American dream, we in America have formulated a way to achieve the American church dream. And he says that formula for growing a church has three parts to it. Number one, we need a great performance. This requires a charismatic communicator who is very entertaining along with an accomplished worship leader who is very impressive. Great performance. Second, we need a great place. A multi-million dollar facility with all the bells and whistles. And third, we need great programs. Slick programs run by trained professionals who suggest to people, don't try this at home. Now, the fundamental problem with that pattern is that you can do any or all of it without the Spirit of God. And in contrast, when we look at the book of Acts, we don't find that formula. They didn't have skilled professionals. In fact, in Acts 4.13, the religious professionals of the day called the church leaders uneducated and untrained men. 
And they said the only thing that makes sense is that they've been hanging out with Jesus. Their most effective preacher, Paul, could hardly be called charismatic in the natural sense. He describes his style in 1 Corinthians 2, and he says, I did not come with superiority of speech. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. That's not much of a performance. Can you imagine the flyers promoting him coming? We're going to have a speaker next week. He's going to be weak, fearful, and tremble a lot. Don't miss this guy. What kind of place did they have in the early church? Their first service was held in the streets. And then we're told they met in the temple, which was borrowed, and from house to house. And I don't read anything in the book of Acts about programs. And yet what happened? God sends His Spirit in Acts chapter 2. Peter preaches and 3,000 people are saved. In Acts chapter 3, Peter and John speak the name of Jesus and a 40-year-old man who has been crippled from birth is healed. In Acts chapter 4, they pray until the building they're in begins to shake. In Acts chapter 5, Peter's shadow is falling on people and they're being healed. In Acts chapter 6 and 7, Stephen, who was a pretty impressive preacher, was so good at it that they stoned him to death and he became the first martyr. In Acts chapter 8, the church is scattered by persecution and Philip gets zapped, kind of beam me up, Scotty. He gets zapped from one place to another and leads an Ethiopian to Christ. Acts chapter 9, the most ardent persecutor of the church gets saved. In Acts chapter 10, racial and ethnic barriers to the spread of the gospel begin to collapse. In Acts chapter 11, the church at Antioch is established, which becomes a launching pad for missions to the nations. In Acts chapter 12, Peter is on death row. The church begins to pray. And Peter literally sleepwalks out of prison. Acts chapter 13, Paul begins his travels from city to city, preaching the gospel, healing people, and even raising the dead. Now I would say that's a dream church. I don't know about you, but I want us to be that church. And we began last week to list some things in the early church in Acts chapter 2 that characterized them, things that set them apart as world changers and hell crashers. And I want to pick up this morning in the fifth characteristic that we pointed out. It's in your bulletin. Fifth is that they were courageously sharing. Look at verse 44 of Acts chapter 2. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart. Three things they were sharing. 
First of all, they were sharing their possessions. What was going on here in the early church was not tithing. What was going on here in the early church was not just convenient giving. They weren't just giving their excess stuff. I had a garage sale and I couldn't sell this, so I'm going to give it to the missionaries. You see, this was sacrificial giving. And they could have made excuses. I don't have any liquid assets right now, so I can't give. But they were moved with compassion for the needs of others, and so they got creative, and they found a way to give. They sold their property. They sold their possessions in order to give to the needs of other people. And I would suggest to you this morning that an impactful church is a generous church. A.W. Tozer once wrote, There is a disease which is particularly common in our day. It is called cirrhosis of the giver. It was actually discovered about 34 A.D. and ran a terminal course in a couple named Ananias and Sapphira. It is an acute condition which renders the patient's hand immobile when it attempts to move from the billfold to the offering plate. The remedy is to remove the afflicted person from the house of God since it is clinically observable that this condition disappears in alternate environments such as golf courses, clubs, or restaurants. With very few exceptions, the early church had no such epidemic. They gave freely and they gave bountifully. And even what they kept was shared as common property. What they had, they just said, it's, it's for you to use. They shared their houses with each other, which meant they had a lot of messes, they had a, a lot of wear and tear, they had a lot of chipped furniture. In fact, if you look over at chapter 4 and verse 32, there's a great insight into this. It says in verse 32, and the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul. And not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own. But all things were common property to them. Now some people have criticized this by saying this is communism. Well, I wouldn't argue with that. It is, in a sense, communism in the purest sense. But it's not communism in the negative sense that we know that term. And the differences are this. Communism collects everything and then distributes it equally to everyone. But everyone didn't get this. In fact, if you look at verse 34 of chapter 4, it says, For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet, and they would be distributed to who? To each one as anyone had need. This was not a redistribution of wealth. This was selling your property, selling your possessions, giving them to the apostles, and when somebody had a need, they gave that money to meet that need. 
And then communism mandates that you give up your property. This was not mandated. They didn't have to give. You say, well, what caused them to give like this? There's a little phrase at the end of verse 33. Notice what it says. An abundant grace was upon them all, for there was not a needy person among them. What motivated them? Abundant grace. You see, it wasn't, man, it wasn't law that they had to give. Grace caused them to give. In fact, if you look in chapter 5 at the example of Ananias and Sapphira, in verse 4, Peter is speaking to them and he says, while it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? You see, the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was not that they didn't give everything. They didn't have to give anything. Their sin was that they lied about what they gave. In fact, later in Acts chapter 12 and verse 12, we're told about a prayer meeting that was held in Mary's house. Everybody kept possessions, but they said, my possessions are yours to use. If you need them, I will share them with you. Communism says... What is yours is mine, I'll take it. Grace says, what is mine is yours. I'll share it. They shared their possessions. Secondly, and maybe even more importantly, they shared their time. Because verse 46 says they did this day by day. Striving together for the faith of the gospel takes time. Fellowship takes time. Prayer takes time. Just as they shared their possessions to meet the physical needs of other people, they shared their time to meet the spiritual needs of other people. And again, they could have made excuses. They could have said, I didn't feel led. Or I don't have the time. But what did they do? They made the time. They shared their possessions, they shared their time, and they shared their energy. That's not directly stated here, but when you have a growing 3,000-member church, you have a lot of service opportunities. Somebody had to be preparing these meals. Somebody had to be distributing this money. There had to be child care. And the impression you get is that it was all just sort of happening without a whole lot of program to it. It wasn't until chapter 6 they put seven guys over the distribution of the food at that point. You've probably heard it said that in the average church, 20% of the people do 80% of the work. That's not healthy. If 20% of your body is doing 80% of the work, you've got a problem. The impression we get in the early church is everybody pitched in. They gave 
their possessions, they gave their time, they gave their energy. And the phrase that I just love is at the end of verse 46 of chapter 2, where it says, they were doing so with sincerity of heart, or literally with singleness of heart, which I would translate simplicity. They made it simple. It wasn't complicated for them. When we give, we usually make it complicated. We think, okay, if I give him this, how much will I have left? And what am I going to do about my bills next week? And how's this all going to work out? They made it very simple. They saw a need. And what did they do? They gave their money. They made the time. And they provided the energy. It was that simple. You got a need, I'm going to meet your need. In the 1988 Winter Olympics, American speed skater Dan Jansen was favored to win the gold medal. The day before his first race, his sister died of leukemia. He went ahead and raced the race for his sister. And when he got to the first turn, he fell and lost the race. Four days later, he was racing the 1,000-meter race. He laced on his skates, skated again for his sister with all of America looking on and rooting for him, and he fell again, lost the race. You could just feel America sort of mourning for this guy and his family. Sports Illustrated reported that Dan received a number of letters, letters of consolation. One in particular came from a 30-year-old mentally disabled man from Doylestown, Pennsylvania. His name was Mark Arrowwood, and here's his letter. Dear Dan, I watched you on TV. I am sorry you fell two times. I am in the Special Olympics. Seven years ago, right after my dad died, I won a gold medal in the Pennsylvania State Special Olympics. Before we start each race, our teachers tell us to pray, let me win, but if I can't, let me be brave in the attempt. I want to share my gold medal with you because I don't like to see you not get one. Try again next time. And inside the envelope was Mark Arrowwood's gold medal. He demonstrates the attitude of an impactful church. When somebody else needs something, We give them ours. The early church was courageously sharing. Sixth characteristic. They were constantly rejoicing. Look in verse 46 and you'll see that little phrase, with gladness. I love this. One of the characteristics of the early church is that they were joyful. They were happy. 
In fact, earlier in this chapter, in verse 13, they are accused of being drunk. People are so happy all the time, they got to be drunk. It's constant happy hour. What's interesting is, this was not just the fickle joy of circumstances. This was a constant joy for them, because in Acts chapter 5, the apostles are arrested and beaten. And when they're released, here's what we read in verse 47. They went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. They rejoiced around the dinner table, and they rejoiced in suffering. How'd they do that? Because the joy that they had was the joy of the Lord. Jesus said in John 17, 13, These things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy made full in themselves. You say, well, Jesus has gone away. How do we still have his joy? We have his joy because we have his spirit inside of us. And the Bible says the fruit of the spirit is what? Love, joy. In Acts chapter 13 and verse 52, it says the disciples were continually filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Those two go together. If you are filled with the Holy Spirit, you will be filled with joy. So as people come, as visitors to this church, and they come in, do they say, those are joyful people? Or do you look like you drank vinegar for snack? Are you filled with the Spirit? Because if you are, you're going to be filled with joy, and it doesn't depend on your circumstances. An impactful church is a joyful church. And seventh, they were consistently thankful. You see the first words in verse 47? It says they were praising God. I'm just going to touch on this this morning because I want to come back to this next time because I really want to focus on this idea of praising God and worshiping. But here we're told that in the temple, from house to house, day by day by day, they were praising God. Now when you praise God every day, some days it's easy to praise God. Some days it's a little more difficult. Some days it just seems to flow And some days, it's more difficult. And that's why I think in Hebrews chapter 13 and verse 15, it says that sometimes our praise has to be a sacrifice of praise. What's a sacrifice? That's when you come and you lay your lips on the altar and you say, God, I'm going to praise you today even though I got a lot of pain inside. Even though I'm dealing with a lot of fears in my life. Even though I've got a lot of challenges and this world seems to be pressing in on me and I feel squeezed and sometimes defeated, but I'm going to come and I'm going to lay my lips on the altar and I'm going to praise you in these difficult circumstances. I'm going to be like Job who lost everything and fell down on his knees and worshipped God. You see, some days it's going to flow easily. Some days you're going to 
praise God with your hands full of blessings and say, this is so easy to praise you because you've given me all these things. And some days you're going to praise God like Paul and Silas with chains on your hands. Say, God, I'm still going to sing your praises in this dark prison cell where I find myself right now. Praise should always be on the lips of God's people. Psalm 147 says, Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is becoming. Which is a great phrase. You know what that phrase means? It means praise looks good on you. We don't come here on Sunday to have a performance on this stage. There is only one audience here, and that is God. And He is looking down to see how you are praising Him. That's what matters. And the Bible says praise looks good on you. So if you come to church and you think it's all about what you wore today, it's not. If you think it's all about the makeup that makes you look good, it isn't. God says the thing that is becoming, the thing that is attractive on you is praise for God. Then there's a great verse in Psalm 22.3. It says, God inhabits the praises of his people. What does that mean? It means God shows up in a special way when we praise him. When we are praising him from a sincere heart, an honest heart, a humble heart, God inhabits that praise. He just sort of rests in that and goes, oh, this is really comfortable for me. An impactful church is a church that's praising God. Let me ask you a question in closing. If everybody here was just like you, what kind of church would we have? If everybody here had your commitment, if everybody gave like you give, if everybody was joyful like you're joyful, if everybody praised God the way you praise God, what kind of church would it be? You might be comfortable there. But how about God? How about God? We're going to close our service today by taking communion. That's another Christianese word. Communion is a real simple word. It means we get our root common from it. It's to share in common. Communion comes from the idea in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 that when we take the bread, we share in the body of Christ. And when we take the cup, we share in the blood of Christ. So it's a, it's a community thing. When we take the bread and cup, we're communing with Christ. We're having fellowship with Him, but we're also having fellowship with each other. And so as we take communion today, let's be sharing in that community because you know what it also says about the bread? It says the bread represents the one body of Christ. It represents our unity with each other. So not only are we sharing together with Christ, but we are expressing the unity that we have as a body in sharing with each other. So let's share together as we do this. And let's rejoice.
Whatever's going on in your life, guess what? Eternal life trumps that. So as the Bible says, we are to rejoice always in the Lord. So as we come and focus on the cross and what Jesus did for us and how his resurrection tore the gates off of hell so that we have eternal life, we can rejoice today. And then let's praise him. Let's adore him. Let's give him all our adoration, all our worship, all our praise because he is the only one who is worthy. I'm going to give thanks for the bread and the cup. And then I would ask you to examine your heart today and then participate. If you're a guest, you're welcome. This is not our communion service. It's the Lord's Supper. It's his. If you're a believer, you're welcome. You can get up when your heart is ready and go to one of the stations and partake and go back to your seat. Let's examine our hearts today and ask God, God, make me. person that you want me to be so that I, along with others collectively, can be a church that is impactful in this world for eternity. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this simple bread and simple cup. Reminders to us of the cross where the body of Jesus was broken and where his blood ran free to deliver us, to free us, to forgive us, to cleanse us, to make us your children, to establish your called out group, which you have made us part of. And Lord, as we take the bread and the cup today, I pray that you would humble our hearts. Cause us to truly worship you Cause us, Lord, to go from here rejoicing in what you've done for us. Lord, I pray that as a result of that, we would truly be people who take our fingers off of what we possess and give them to you and to others to further your kingdom. In Jesus' name.